Well, as Pastor Brent said uh, earlier, if you haven't already, go ahead and uh, find the book of Haggai or Haggai in your Bible. I hope you've enjoyed uh, this uh, sermon series that we've been working through together. Um, There are 12 minor prophets, um, and we haven't done all of them, Um, but I hope you've enjoyed the ones that we uh, have made it through. I know I have um, really enjoyed hearing from um, these brothers as they bring the word to us. I think uh, when we think of the biblical prophets, probably one of the things that we think of most often is a message of judgment or of confrontation. And it's true that in a lot of them, uh, we we do find a lot of confrontation and talk about judgment. Uh, But you also find, if you read them, that in the prophetic books, both the major and minor prophets, you will find some of the most awe-inspiring expressions of God's generosity and affection for his people. The same people that he is speaking words of judgment to uh, because he loves them. And I think uh, the book of Haggai is one of those books that has this mix of loving discipline and, and great promise and encouragement and reassurance. Uh, there's, a, there's an Old Testament text that I think is really helpful for understanding a lot of the Old Testament, but especially the prophetic books, and that is uh, in the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapters 27 through 30, uh, the people of Israel are about to enter Canaan, and Moses uh, is kind of rehearsing the law with them. And so he, he says, before you enter, you need to remember that God has entered into a special relationship of grace with you a covenant where God has promised to be your God and he has made you his people. And so if you are faithful to God, if you are loyal to the living God, then God will pour out blessing on you and he will pour out all of these blessings and he enumerates these, that God will bless your crops and God will bless your families and that God will give you military or uh, border security and so forth. But he says... If you are not loyal to God, then there are covenant curses, and this is the list of them, and it's long, okay? It's chapter 28, if you want to book that, bookmark that in your mind. And he says, uh, basically, as, as he enumerates the, the covenant curses, basically it reads like the covenant blessings in reverse. It, uh, God says, instead of you being the head and other countries being the tail, I will make other countries the head, and you will be the tail. Instead of going up, you will go down, okay? And so uh, this is the Mosaic covenant under which Israel lived. And so uh, God had said, actually, in Deuteronomy, long before Israel ever went into exile, God had promised, if you will still persist, I will send you into exile. And then he said, but I will not leave you there. I'll bring you back, and I will restore you in a number of ways. And so that's what happens. Um, Of the 12 minor prophets, nine of them are written uh, before the exile, where the prophets are speaking to a people who are disobeying God and ignoring his blessings. They're ignoring his judgments. Nothing will make them turn back from their sin. They want to do 
something else. And so um, as they speak judgment to the people, Israel slides toward exile. And eventually, um, Israel and then Judah are both uh, carried away by Assyria and Babylon. But true to his word, after exile, God began bringing Israel back to their land. In 539 B.C., God moved in the heart of a Persian king, Cyrus, to send Jews back to Canaan to repair and resettle their devastated land. Um, And so the books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell us about that process and what happened um, after it. And uh, three of the minor prophets are written to this, what we call, post-exilic community. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Um, As we read in Ezra, no doubt many of the Jews, as as they came back, were determined not to repeat the mistakes of their forefathers. They didn't want to go back into exile again. And so one of the first things they do when they get back is they go to the ruins of the Temple Mount and they rebuild the main altar so that they can resume offering sacrifices to God and worshiping the true God at the Temple However, as soon as they start rebuilding the actual temple itself and trying to repair walls and things like that, Ezra chapter 4 tells us that they hit roadblocks. It says this, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. In other words, people around Israel put pressure on the Israelites and successfully got them to stop for something like 15 years. And then in Ezra 5, we read this. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And so this morning, we're going to read um, uh, part of Haggai's preaching to the people of Israel. Um, The book of Haggai consists of, it has two chapters, but really it consists of four brief messages that were delivered over the course of four months. And God used these brief messages to motivate God's people to start building the temple again. And so we want to ask ourselves this morning, what kinds of things does God use to motivate his people toward obedience? And I think the answer to that will be encouraging to you. So let's begin reading in Haggai chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 and 2. Uh, and uh, this is, it, it's about to give us a date, and I'll just tell you, it's August 29th of 520 B.C. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So here, Haggai gives us the context. The people are intending to rebuild the temple someday, but not right now. The problem is that it's been 15 years, and they've justified their failure to act. And we know that they have pressure from outside and that they are afraid. They live in a city, at least in Jerusalem, they live in a city that has no walls, or the damaged walls. And so they're afraid. But it's not like they they haven't been doing something for 15 years. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. 
Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself or runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for drought on the land and on the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So this is the first message of Haggai. And it tells us, what have the Jews been doing for the previous 15 years? Well, the fact that some of them have wood-paneled houses uh, tells us they've not been slacking off. They've invested significant time and money into finishing their own neighborhoods and houses. Apparently, uh, their neighbors were okay with the Jews rebuilding their homes, but the moment they touched the Temple Mount, that was not okay. As soon as they started rebuilding the worship center of the living God and of the symbol of Jewish unity, that was not okay, and that triggered their hostility. And so the Jews settle for obeying God just as far as their unbelieving neighbors will allow them. And then at that point, they turn around and just busy themselves making themselves comfortable. Or at least they're trying. In fact... Life for this remnant community the last 15 years has been very difficult. Um, they've had bad harvests, not enough rain. They just, it's like they can't catch a break, and they don't know where the money is going, like the guy with the hole in his pocket. But they should have known why. And God says, consider your ways. You need to think carefully about how life has been for you. And when God talks about suppressing their harvest, what this screams is Deuteronomy 28. These are the covenant curses for disobedience. How had they disobeyed God? Well, for all of their sacrifices on the altar, they really weren't honoring God. God says, you ought to take interest in what I want and in my glory. Uh, But as it was, the sorry state of the temple was like a a billboard of their small view of God. And so... um, I can imagine that perhaps for some of these Israelites to hear this might be discouraging because here they are on the other side of exile and some of them at least are back in the land and God is talking about covenant curses again. I'm suppressing your crops because you're not obeying me. And probably, perhaps for some of them, it felt like, here we go again. Like, we're still here. We're still struggling with sin and disobedience. They're still sluggish to obey. But there's hope here. The fact is, is that the covenant is still in play because God has upheld his end. God has not forsaken them. And so God commands them very, very succinctly, go to the hills, get wood, 
build the house. Get, get to work. Um, why? Well, it's implied that God is going to reverse their situation and begin to bless their land. But the reason that God gives here most clearly is God-centered reasons. He says, I want, you, uh, I, I want to take pleasure in your worship, and I want to be glorified. And because God is the true God, that's only right. God doesn't say anything about their surrounding nations or what they think about it or how they may threaten them. God simply says, I have the authority to call you to worship the true God. So how do the people respond? Well, the people respond in obedience. Fifteen years of, of hesitating get turned around in the space of about three months, uh, if, you, if you follow the date in verse 15. Uh, so let's start reading in verse 12. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. And so confronted by God about their behavior, the people had a choice to make. And they chose to honor God's desire above their desires and to honor what God wanted over what the, uh, their unbelieving neighbors wanted. They feared the Lord. And we could say they repent. They turn course. And how does God respond? He immediately says, he reassures them and says, I am with you. Um, that should ring bells in your mind. That should echo throughout scriptures. God spoke these words to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to Joshua. These are words of grace, where God reassures his people with his presence. I know that your neighbors don't like you, and they don't want you to build, and they want to make you afraid, but I am with you. And so this is uh, Haggai's first message, and it's favorably received, and the people begin to melt. Uh, to build. So a little less than a month passes, and um, we come to message two. Um, and if you look at the date, uh, it may not mean much to us, uh, but if you do the math, it turns out that this message was actually presented during the Feast of Booths. It was a national uh, uh, holiday that God had uh, prescribed for the people of Israel, and they would be getting together for solemn assemblies during this week. But it's also the anniversary, that week is, of the dedication of Solomon's temple. So here they are, presumably meeting around the Temple Mount at the anniversary of one of the most glorious moments in Israel's history, the dedication of the temple. And here is the temple, in their view, destroyed. And so God sends a message in this context to the people through Haggai, I think tailored for that moment. Chapter 2, verse 1. October 17th. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, 
and to all the remnant of the people and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. No doubt some of the people, a month into the work, were not impressed with their own progress. The task seemed overwhelming. And you probably have had moments in your life where you're starting a task and you're pretty sure that the end game, the end picture, is not going to be great. Like maybe you've worked on a project at work where you feel like this report is going to go in a file and nobody's going to care about it. Or you're working on a team and the other people uh, have a different direction for how it's going to go and you think, I don't think this is going to be great. And if you are not convinced that the end product is worth it, that's going to affect everything you do in that project. And so here these people felt hopeless. And yet God comes and wants to give them a different picture. He tells them to be strong and to, be, and, and to work and to not be afraid. Um, but I want to look briefly at how God confronts feelings of discouragement and hopelessness. First of all, he reminds them of his commitment to them. He says, I am with you. Remember the covenant. My spirit is still among you. And we could unpack that for a while, but I'll just leave that with you and we'll keep moving. Um, and secondly, God confronts their hopelessness by reminding them of his plans for this project. God reiterates here what he had said before through some of the previous prophets, that his ultimate plans for Jerusalem were plans of beauty, of glory, and of peace. Someday, even the Gentiles will bring in items of value and treasure to beautify the worship of the true God. And so the point here is that God is in charge of his own project. The silver and the gold of the earth may seem to be in the power of humans, of powerful people, of states, of empires, but God says, no, it's all mine, and it's under my control. And if I want to beautify this place, then it will be beautified. Um, and so for Haggai's audience, this, this must have seemed like, well, this must be a really long ways off that God will do this. But if you read the book of Ezra, you find that actually in a very short time after Haggai preaches, King Darius would lend the weight of the royal Persian treasury to finance and finish the temple project. And later, another pagan king, uh, or ungodly king, would expand and beautify the Jerusalem temple even more. But the point, again, is this. If God tells you, God tells you the future, 
in order to strengthen your obedience today. And we'll come back to that later. Uh, Let's keep reading. Uh, Prophecy number 3 begins in chapter 2, verse 10. And the date here is December 18th, 520 B.C., the day that they officially complete the foundation of the temple. And that's a significant step. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there, that is on the altar, is unclean. Now then, consider, from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. But consider, from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive trees have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. So the logic of this section is a little maybe harder to determine um, just right off the bat. But I think what Haggai is saying here is uh, that the people of Israel are very familiar with cleanness and uncleanness in the Mosaic law. And as a general rule, cleanness was, did not like transfer. It wasn't catching, if you will. Um, but uncleanness was very much so. It was very easy to spread uncleanness from one thing to the next. In, uh, in their uh, Levitical practices. And so um, uh, Haggai reminds them of this and then says basically what has been happening is that perhaps you have thought that the fact that you got the, the altar going would make your community holy. Like we have the, the altar going, we're offering sacrifices on it to the true God. And he says, no, actually um, your offerings have not been acceptable. Why? Because the state of your hearts, the uncleanness of your split loyalty between God and your own desires or God and the people around you, your uncleanness has actually made your offerings unclean. But, he says, that's how things have been. But now that your hearts have turned and you have begun to obey, I want you to notice something God says. I want you to take note. He says, consider three times. I want you to note, from this day forward, although you have been faithless to the covenant, I will be faithful to my promises. And as you move forward in obedience, I will bless you. And I want you to take note how things will change for your harvests, he says. Uh, Let's uh, read, beginning in verse 20, prophecy number 4, and we'll finish out the book. Verse 20. Also the same day, December 18th, 520 B.C. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. 
Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Briefly, I I think what God is getting at with this section directed to Zerubbabel is important. Because after the exile, there was no son of David on Israel's throne. And so many of the Israelites would be looking at God and saying, you promised to make a great king of all the earth out of one of David's sons. So what happened? David is like a giant tree that's been chopped down, or David is like a tent that's been knocked over. And what now? All that's left is Zerubbabel, who is a grandson of the last Israelite king. And Zerubbabel is not a king. He's a governor under the charge of Persia. Um, and, and God had said about Zerubbabel's grandfather, he said, because he was so disobedient to God, God said, even if he were like a signet ring around my neck, I would tear him off and discard him. And so is Zerubbabel discarded? Is the line of David discarded? What about God's promises? Have they been discarded? And basically what God is saying here is no. He has not discarded his promises toward David's line. And if you know the New Testament, you know that in Matthew 1, Zerubbabel shows up in Jesus' genealogy, in the line of God's forever king. And so someday when all the nations bow to Jesus' authority, David's family and Zerubbabel's family will be vindicated. It will be clear that his work was not in vain. And let me just demonstrate how, uh, or just point out that God is pointing Zerubbabel, I think, to the end, okay, to his future plan for the line of David, and saying, I'm going to keep my promises, so don't lose hope, Zerubbabel. Don't give up. So, epilogue. What happens after Haggai? Well, uh, the elders of the Jews uh, in Ezra 6, we're told that they prosper through Haggai's and Zechariah's preaching. So actually, Haggai is a word of grace from God that helps prosper the people. Um, And they finish the temple four years later. So, in closing, what do we learn about God from Haggai? Um, First of all, Let me suggest, we must fear God above all else. We must fear God above all else. Um, Both above our own comfort and above the approval of others. In our world, we are distracted by lots of things that we want to do. Um, We have pressure from our society not to do or say certain things that cross a line. And many of us, we know where those lines are. And yet, we are to obey God rather than man. Or Jesus said, we are to fear God rather than man. 
Um, if you want a good guide in that further reading, I would read 1 Peter, which teaches us how to live in a world that opposes us, uh, displaying Christ as we do. Second, um, what do we learn from Haggai? We must respond gratefully to God's kind correction. I just want to point out a, a simple point here, uh, basically that um, sometimes as we go throughout our Christian life, God disciplines us, and we find on the other side of discipline and growth, we're still struggling. And yet, I want you to just note in Haggai God's gentleness and patience with his people. He does not forsake his promises. He does not forsake those whom he's promised to love. And in Christ, that is true of us. God says, I am with you. And third, we must allow God's plans for the future to motivate our obedience today. I don't have time to go into this at length, but I, I want you to think of a couple examples. One would be your own growth in holiness. That your growth in holiness is messy, and there are ups and downs. And there are times of great obedience, and there are times where you fall back into struggle. But God says at the end that he will present you faultless before his throne with joy. So can you look to the end of the project that is your sanctification and see what God is going to do? And can you allow that to give you strength to fight sin today because you know how it ends? The project will be finished. It's God's project. He's going to finish it. So don't be afraid to, to fight sin and to work. Don't be discouraged thinking, I'm never, I'm never going to get there, right? Um, the, the same is with the church as a whole, right? You, not just at yourself, but you look at the people in the row next to you, right? Those people. Yes, those people. Um, and maybe some of them, uh, you think, boy, their sanctification is going slowly, right? Or maybe it's someone in your home. But God will finish theirs too. He is going to present the church in white robes, pure, spotless before Christ. And so, if that's true, that should motivate you to say, I can disciple people, because God's going to finish his work. And there are applications to the Great Commission. God's going to gather people. So, go gather them. You can't fail. And over and over in the Bible, God tells us the end of something so that we can have hope for today. We have strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. A guy ministered among people who struggled with half-hearted obedience and their circumstances were uninspiring. What they needed was to see a vision of God's glory and of God's unshakable kingdom that was coming. And so um, I'm going to finish here uh, with the words of Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus and how Jesus' resurrection ensures our future resurrection. And he says this, but thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you confront our sluggish hearts 
You confront our divided loyalties, and you call us to fear you alone. And you clear our muddied heads with truth. Father, thank you that you give us hope by helping us to see the end. And Lord, I pray that that you would help us uh, by faith to find strength for today by faith in your promises. Lord, I pray that you would um, give us grace. Uh, Thank you for your patience with us as we uh, grow in obedience through your word and through your spirit. Lord, we love you and we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.